GPS on your NES. More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Google Maps on the NES. Games within games. Uncovering Arctic Adventure. And we judge dread. All this in our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Neil, do you remember what life was like before GPS? Before GPS? Well, before it was commonly available in our cars and such, which would have been, what, early 2000s? About 2000, 2001, I think, it started appearing. Mm -hmm. I was driving long before we had before it was affordable to have in, have in the car because GPS is a lot older, obviously, than just GPSs in our cars. But I think when people right. say GPS, they're generally referring to that kind of thing, aren't they? Car-based um, navigation. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think my first experience of GPS would have been with um, Garmin, who is still a well-known name in the GPS world. They used to make these little standalone devices uh, mm-hmm. and it just locked onto satellites to give you your position. It, it didn't do anything more than that. So if you wanted to get clever with it, you had to uh, connect it up to your laptop with a, I think it was a serial cable back then that I connected to my laptop, my Sony Vio, it probably was. And um, then you'd pull up something like Microsoft, assuming Microsoft had bought it by then, Autoroute. Um, mm-hmm. You don't hear about Autoroute anymore, do you? And um, then you could experience the magic. The Garmin would talk to the laptop. It would update your position on auto route and you could experience the magic of driving with a laptop precariously balanced on the passenger seat (laughs) with a 45 minute battery life. Those were good times, John. Just, you just have to make all your trips really short. Yeah. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) I remember when I first moved to Washington, D.C., right out of college um my first teaching job i had to teach at four different elementary schools uh and um it was uh, i'd go to two schools in the morning and two schools in the afternoon and i went to a gas station and i bought a huge atlas of all the streets in prince george's county maryland where this was and this was this was still this was 2003 so i mean gps was available but i didn't have it um it's it's hard to believe that you know that late in the game 2003 and i was still i had that that atlas open on my knees as i was driving around the streets of of maryland and uh i had to do that for you know every day while i got used to where all these schools were located and of course i was moving from a pretty rural area in ohio to you know one of the main suburbs of dc so uh it was a different world before our phones just told us how to get anywhere Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it really was. It really was. And uh, there will be kids today who still get to enjoy things like orienteering exercises and the art Mm -hmm. of map reading and map folding. Uh, And I do wonder if they are any worse than previous generations at getting around with a map, because, um, you know, if GPS isn't available, if you think about it in one way, they're probably more exposed to maps than ever before, than our generation ever were, because they'll turn to a map just to find a shop on the high street. Now, granted, the phone will be telling them where to go and it will be using GPS, but they're still looking at a map and that's a hell of a lot Mm -hmm. more than we did on a day-to-day basis. So that's something, I guess, GPS, I don't don't think it's killing those skills. I've gone a little bit off topic there though, John. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's not going to kill those skills until the AR glasses come out that just point, you know, point you where you need to go all the time, just give you a layover. Yeah. uh, uh, and the self-driving shoes that just take yes. you there. 
now now what about google maps neil do you remember the first time that you saw that oh i can go back before that john so uh let me take you back to 1997 i was a young Ooh. man doing some work experience that uh, it actually required me to sign the official secrets act so i have to oh my be gosh. a little bit vague on this <laughs> but um not that it really bears any relevance to, to, to that day but i don't want to be sent to the gallows so um i experienced some time on this placement with the programmer behind a system that stitched together satellite images it allowed you to zoom in and out at very high resolution uh it allowed you to see and plot activities over the maps so you could see what was going on overlaid and this was all presented in a really friendly front end so that non-technical people could use it. So um, it was Google Maps in all but name. Obviously, it wasn't by Google. This was this was a, a you know, a side project for, um, I can't say, I can't say, but um, <laughs> it, it was seriously impressive. You know, I felt like James Bond just using this bit of software, which is not something us techie nerds get to say very often. Um, just zooming in and out. And... I knew, you know, it's it's one thing knowing that a database, for example, has a huge amount of information in it. It's all very impressive. But to, to then visually experience a magnificent amount of data, that's exactly what satellite imagery is, all stitched together, all working like that, to see the entire country, because it wasn't the world, it was just the country. I say just the country. Uh, to see it in high resolution, and a lot more information besides, you know, it really, really did open my eyes and blow my mind as to the potential of computers and the good use of big data, because that's what we were starting to see, that big data all coming together, being used in the right way. It was one hell of a work placement, I can tell you, John, and it, and it certainly steered me uh, ever more enthusiastically on the course of a career in IT. So Google Maps was more a case when it when it did come along, actual Google Maps, it was it was more a case for me of, hey, it's here to the public. The public can see this kind of thing rather than any big revelation, I think. Well, I mean, I remember the first time that I saw it was really Google Earth rather than Google Maps because they were more discrete products back then. And it wasn't web based. You had to download a program. But when you loaded that program for the first time and you basically in it, it loaded with a view of Earth, like the planet Earth, you know, and you could spin it around and you could do whatever you wanted. And then you could zoom in wherever you wanted. Oh, man, I'd never seen anything like that before. I mean, um, the, the fact that it was all in real time, uh, it was one of the most mind blowing experiences I've ever had uh, using using a computer. Um, at the time I was living in Korea, it was either 2007 or 2008. Somebody shared it with me and um, it actually cured a little of the homesickness I had at the time, just being able to virtually travel to West Virginia and uh, check out some of my old haunts. Uh, mm. It was it was awesome. It was great. I will say when it when it came to Street View appearing, that really took it to a next level for me to be able to get down and then flick through all those images taken at street level of, mm -hmm. uh, and and they, they got such blanket coverage that I could just go down these obscure streets that I think, well, I'm probably the only person that's ever looked this road up on street view, but they've done it. They've documented right. it. Uh, yeah. And of course it's no good if they don't do that. They've got to get that blanket coverage to make it the place to go. And um, yeah, that, that blew my mind. That really took it to the next level. Now, about 10 years ago, uh, Google unveiled a version of their maps uh, called 8-bit Google Maps. Uh, it took their normal maps engine and it overlaid 8-bit inspired tile sprites over the top. Uh, it, it gave the whole project kind of an NES era feel. Do you remember that, Neil? 
I want to say yes, but I, I don't. I think that passed me by. That was really a thing, was it, John? Well, no, it wasn't. Unfortunately, oh. <laughs> like so many of their other great ideas, it turned out to be one of their famous uh, Google April Fool's jokes. And uh, as such, it was it was quickly forgotten until now. Neil. Um, this week, a new version of Google Maps debuted, and get this, Neil, uh, with the help of an actual NES cartridge. Uh, YouTube uh, YouTuber CC Plus dropped a video last week detailing development of an actual working Google Maps client using not as the uh, linked article reports Zelda sprites, but they're actually Dragon Warrior sprites from Nintendo's first iteration of the game. Uh, he used an algorithm created by Alistair Acheson. I think that's how you say his name, Acheson. And uh, it maps the same 16 by 16 grid of icons from Dragon Warrior onto the grid of icons that would normally be used for Google Google Maps. I've got to say, Neil, the results of this are really impressive. Uh, then he teamed up with fellow wacky NES developer, the Rasteri, to Frankenstein an NES cart with some extra oomph that allows the whole thing to connect to a server and run. Uh, this is the same Rasteri that created a running version of Doom on an NES cart because you knew that had to be coming, right? <laughs> it sounds great. I haven't actually seen this yet. I need to go and follow the link and have a look at this story you found. But um, uh, I have seen in the past uh, posters that people have made of like a world map using the Super Mario tile set. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that looks really quite nice so um i'm not that familiar with the dragon warrior tower set so i'd love to see this with the super mario tower set but i'm sure that's easily done you know now they've done the hard work they could right. probably swap in and out tile sets if they wanted to as well um mm -hmm. but yeah sounds like a lot of fun and um it also it gets me thinking about something that's popped into my mind a lot over the years and i'm sure i'm not the only one and that is um you, you know if you take google earth or Bing Earth or, or whatever it's called with Microsoft. Um, if you take it to its conclusion, I mean, eventually, will we have this kind of Earth game engine or something that we can use as a game engine? I guess it kind of does exist and it kind of has been used in that way. If you look at the latest Microsoft Flight Simulator, that draws all of its data from Bing Earth or whatever it's called. I really must find out. Is it called Bing Earth? What's I think it it's just called Bing Earth or Bing Maps or something. Shows how often I use that. I just default to Google Earth, I'm afraid. <laughs> Sorry, Microsoft. But um, yeah, how, how cool would it be if that evolved into a whole world game engine that anyone could use? So indie game devs could pick a city, set up a racetrack, and then all they have to work on is creating their cars and their rules for racing. And the whole like super realistic environment is already there for them yeah i know it's a it's a overly simplistic view of game development and how all this can be used but it would be pretty cool i'd like to see that happen someday anyway once again john pull us back on topic because i'm going off on tangents today <laughs> Well, the NES Google Maps is still in development, um, but the hope is that they'll be able to cram all of the additional hardware into the case of an NES cart, then make the whole thing boot using nothing but original NES hardware. So you'll have what appears to be a normal NES cart. You put it into the NES and it will connect to the server through Wi-Fi and boom, you're in. So this is definitely a project I'm going to be following closely. And you can check out the video of what's been done so far through the link in the show notes. Our next story is just another example in a long line of games in which you can play other games, other games which are hidden or otherwise within it. 
The game in question is Life is Strange, True Colors from Square Enix. It's a supernatural teen fiction kind of adventure. I'll be honest, I don't know a huge amount other than what I've seen in the trailer, and a very impressive trailer it is too, but it comes across with that kind of teen fiction supernatural vibe to it. So if that's your thing, you might like it, but it's not really up my street. But there is something really interesting about this game. We're talking about it because there's an area within the game, a bar that you can go and visit, and um, in the bar are some arcade machines. And yes, you can walk up to one of them and uh, you can play a fully licensed version of Arkanoid. Now, Arkanoid is a game that I love and the sequel. John, can you remember the last time you had a had a game of Arkanoid? Oh, yeah. I, I almost purchased an Arkanoid at, the, uh, at an arcade auction I went to a couple of years ago. I ended up with a Mario Brothers instead, but uh, it is, it's one of my favorite games. I love it. Oh, that's right. You've got an original Mario Brothers arcade cabinet right there, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I think given the choice of the two, I probably would have gone with the same one. Um, get, get Arkanoid next time. But both yeah, with lovely cabinets. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, this game, much like in Shenmue, um, which had an outrun cabinet you could walk up to and play. I think that one also had Hang On and Space Harrier, mm -hmm. all of these classic Sega games. And I always find this kind of thing to be a lot of fun. It's often a welcome respite from whatever's going on in the real game. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I like, I like finding them. So, um, John, can you remember any games you've played in which you've found another game to play on? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first game within a game I can remember seeing was our, our shared classic uh, Leisure Suit Larry and the Land of the Lounge Lizards. <laughs> uh, I know you're well familiar with this game too, Neil. Oh, yes. uh, I still remember pulling up to the casino for the first time when you take the taxi and uh, you pull up in front of the casino and they have blackjack and slots. Oh, I loved it. Uh, and you can still see casino mini games and all kinds of games today. Uh, it's funny, on our Sinclair last week, uh, we reviewed a game called Pajama Rama, uh, which oh, yeah. you're probably aware of. But uh, just in case you're not, it's sort of a dizzy like platform adventure game, but it inexplicably contains multiple areas where you can play Space Invaders. I guess they just thought that would be a cool thing to put in there. Uh, but my favorite game within a game is a, a, a game that Aaron and Brent covered on ARG Presents for the Tatung Einstein uh, called Lazy Jones. Have you ever oh, played yes. Lazy Jones, Neil? I have, and you know the theme tune from Lazy Jones was reused in a dance track some years ago. Um, really? <laughs> I'm struggling to remember which one it was, but, it, you know, it was like a number one. It was a big dance track. Hold oh, on. my gosh. <laughs> you carry on. I'll find out for you, and I'll tell you which one Okay, okay. Well, in Lazy Jones, you play as, well, a lazy hotel janitor that can spend his time either cleaning the floors or breaking into guest rooms and playing a variety of video games they've left carelessly hooked to their in-room telly. So, so it's a great game. Yeah. So I can tell you it was uh, Zombie Nation by mm -hmm. Kerncraft 400. So okay. that is the theme tune to Lazy Jones, if you go and listen to that. Oh, wow. um, I don't think Duncan can play it for copyright reasons, but uh, go, and, go and look it up. You'll know the tune as soon as you hear it. And then if you've played Lazy Jones, you'll you'll put it all together. And then you can't unhear it once you've heard it right. in there. So Games Within Games, I remember when I came across one that lots of people know, which is Maniac, Maniac Mansion, which can be found on a computer within uh, one of the bedrooms in Day of the Tentacle. And mm -hmm. um, in that case, it was the entire game, the entire Maniac Mansion. And that's not a pick-up-and-play arcade game. It, it's a full-blown adventure game. So you could legitimately spend weeks playing that game before returning to the real game that was a hell of a lot of extra <laughs> content in there for you um, oh yeah 
and of course um, maniac Ma sorry day of the tentacle is the sequel to maniac mansion so it's really nice to have that in there um some more examples that i've looked up not necessarily played myself but i find them quite interesting are um the original wolfenstein 3d is tucked away in wolfenstein new order so that's quite a nice callback to its roots um, going back to something a bit more retro, in Donkey Kong 64 on the N64, you could find the original Donkey Kong, but um, you could also find Jetpack. And actually, at that point, I think it was the only way of playing an officially licensed version of Donkey Kong on any console mm. at the time, um, huh. was by playing it within Donkey Kong 64. But um, that was a game by Rare, who were previously known as Ultimate Play the Game, who were superstars on the ZX Spectrum scene. So um, it's good to see in there what you may recall was another Ultimate game, um, <clears throat> which was Jetpack, but also Rare made GoldenEye on the N64. Everyone knows GoldenEye, but within that, you may not know, was a full-blown ZX Spectrum emulator on the cartridge right there in the code. Now, um, I don't think there was actually any way of accessing that ZX Spectrum emulator. They, maybe there was some really convoluted hidden way that only the developers know of firing up that emulator, but it was there on the cartridge and then um, also on the Donkey Kong cartridge. Uh, the text adventure Zork can be found in Call of Duty Black Ops. Not quite sure what the connection is between those two games, but... <laughs> Good luck on cool. playing that with your with your uh, 360 gamepad. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah, there are just lots and lots of examples of this kind of thing. And I think it should be actively encouraged, especially to find retro games within modern games, you know, just it's a nice way to celebrate um, the heritage of a lot of these games and perhaps introduce an audience that's never, ever seen these retro games by, by implanting them into modern games. I like it. Yeah, so, yeah. John, here's a little exercise for you. Uh, let's pair up some games. You can pick any new game and hide within it an old game or another game like uh like pairing cheese and wine together what what would you choose john <laughs> oh boy i mean there's tons tons of things i can think of uh it it seems like you should you should be doing this in almost every game and maybe it's just because i'm so retro biased but i love it when this stuff happens in the original animal crossing game for the gamecube uh you could actually collect cartridges you could buy cartridges in tom nook's store that you could play in a little nes in your house oh cool. uh in a yeah, in a game like Animal Crossing, that's basically collecting sets of things and decorating your house with, you know, all kinds of objects. I always chose the retro objects. Uh, it, it was a, it was a match made in heaven. I mean, you could go into your Animal Crossing house, sit down in front of your Excite Bike, and play Excite Bike. It was great. Um, unfortunately, uh, Nintendo decided they were better off selling their Nintendo games, uh, their classic Nintendo games, and whatever virtual console was available on their system at the time—the Wii Virtual Console or whatever. Uh, so. So since that first game on the GameCube, there are no more games within games in Animal Crossing. But if it were up to me, that's what I'd choose. I'd bring back the NES games in Animal Crossing New Horizons. That's a lot of fun. So you actually pick up the games and then right. carry them back to your house in order to play them. That's, yeah. that's a fun way of doing it. If I had to pick one, there's a game that's well, it's very well known on the home micros because it was ported to absolutely everything. Uh, I think it sold over a million copies, apparently. And um, that game is Chucky Egg, which I know you're familiar oh, yeah. with. L now, love Chucky Egg. Chucky Egg. So uh, I think that it would play well on a modern joypad. You don't need any keyboard or anything like that. So it would, it would, trans it would port to pretty much any game you want to put it in. So um, let's hide Chucky Egg away in, um, let's say, Farming Simulator 
I think that would work. <laughs> so after a hard day's virtual farming, you can you can pop into the farmhouse, maybe find a virtual BBC micro there on the desk, Chucky Egg loaded up and ready to play as uh, Hen, Hen House Harry, wasn't it? With the yeah. big hat. Um, mm-hmm. Collecting eggs and dodging the hens. So there you go. Chucky Egg within Farming Simulator. That's my choice. Love it. So uh, if you happen to see your kids playing Life is Strange, True Colors, or maybe you're playing it yourself, but if you see them playing it as you walk past the lounge, you, you can ask them to go into the back room of the bar, which is called the Black Lantern, where the arcades are, are located. Step up to a virtual game of Arkanoid and show them what real gaming is all about. None of this high-quality cinematic storytelling masterpiece nonsense. Just a bat and ball and a bunch of bricks to smash up. Neil, do you remember your first type-in game experience? Typing game experience? Um, I can't remember exactly what it would have been. It would probably have been on the BBC Micro or the Amstrad CPC. Not sure which. Um, uh, what I do remember, um, not my first, but what I do remember is once buying a game called Rigel's Revenge. I don't know if you've ever seen this game. No, um, no. It was on the Amstrad CPC. I went and picked it up with my pocket money excitedly at a weekend. And on the front of the box, there's this mustachioed dude. Uh, he's got an Uzi in his hand. There's another guy uh, spraying bullets with a bigger gun and kind of this bloody corpse on the floor. It looks like an all-out action game, exactly what I wanted on that day. So I, I pedaled home excitedly and quickly with this game in my pocket. Uh, I'd spent all of my pocket money on it, so it was this or nothing. And... Uh, I was devastated, John, when it loaded up and it was a text adventure. It, oh, it, it's not that like I was against... Like a knife against, through the heart. Yeah, like <laughs> a knife through the heart. It's not like I was against text adventures. I, I just wasn't expecting it. Uh, and the box was lacking screenshots, which should have been a clue. But, mm-hmm. you know, I went by the hype on the back. I bought into the hype man, John. I always do this. I bought into <laughs> the hype man and I was lulled into a false expectation. So I, I never really fully recovered from that day, John. Yeah, I understand. I, I've, <laughs> I've been there myself. Uh, I, I don't remember my very first type in game, but I definitely remember painstakingly typing in code line by line on my Atari 1200XL out of Antic Magazine, which was the big Atari 8-bit magazine here in the States. Uh, I've been looking through old back issues here lately, trying to find any games that ring a bell. Uh, I'm sure that in one of these issues, I'm going to find something I typed in. But uh, I I guess maybe I've just blocked all of those memories out because they were so horrible. You know, not only did you have to get each command exactly right, but you were also relying on the ability of the programmer and the magazine's editor to actually get the code right on the page. And uh, that's the subject of this next story, which was shared with us by subreddit user Pixels at Dawn. Uh, Way back in the heyday of the TRS-80 Model 1, around 1980 or 81, way, way back, a programmer named Harry McCracken coded a text-based adventure game called Arctic Adventure. Uh, As it was common in those days, it was distributed as part of a book. Uh, You used to get these books full of of games that you could type in. This book was called The Captain 80 Book of Basic Adventures, Captain 80. Uh, Neil, I'm sure you had a couple of these type-in books back in the day, didn't you? I was just scanning the shelves as you were saying that. Um, Up here, I can see games for your Commodore 64, introducing your Commodore 64, um, machine code for your BBC Micro. But as I've probably said on previous shows, as an Amstrad owner, I was often quite frustrated that the books that I came across were geared towards BBC, ZX Spectrum or Commodore 64. 
Mm. And I could never, well, that was all in basic. I could never quite work out how to adapt that code to work on my Amstrad CPC. I was just a bit too young, really, at that stage, I think, to get my head around it all and do anything other than just typing in exactly what it told me to type in. And even if it was for the Amstrad, you know, more often than not, it, it wouldn't work anyway. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, what, what I did enjoy, though, back then was a logo on the BBC Micro. We uh, we had to use that in school a lot. And a lot of people listening may well have done that in the UK, too. And what most people remember about Logo is you had a little turtle, you'd type in um, uh, basic programming commands, and the turtle would follow those commands and draw pretty pictures on the screen. Um, there's lots of other programs like it, but Logo is the one that we used. But um, what a lot of people don't remember is that behind that pretty drawing program, there was a really good basic language. And uh, I used to spend my lunch breaks at school typing in um, little adventure games. Uh, I could never get past about three rooms in the time I had in a lunch break, but I would type in these very, very simple text adventures that wouldn't use any of the graphical capabilities whatsoever of Logo, just simple if-else statements where you could say, I want to go north, I want to open the door, or whatever. So um, that is probably more than likely to be my earliest memory of text adventures obviously i was inspired by text adventures so i must have played some before that point but that was probably some of my earliest memories of programming programming anything mm -hmm. whatsoever and not just copying out from a book actually having to engage my brain and think about what programming was and, and what all of these commands did um so yeah that, that those are probably my earliest memories of coding which ties in nicely with text adventures yeah yeah well i I definitely also checked out a few of these books from the library. And just like with you, I owned the lesser a popular computer, the Atari computer compared to the Commodore. And it seemed like all of the books were either written for computers, you know, Commodore or Apple computers, uh, not Atari basic. And so some things kind of worked, but nothing ever worked a hundred percent. But hmm. anyway, Arctic adventure, the, 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 the program in question from this story most definitely did not work for anybody. Uh, it turns out that there was a typo in the book that consisted of a single missing zero in a character string. And as you know, one missing character can render a game unplayable, and which is what happened here. I, I guess the person whose job it was to check the code in the old Captain 80 book of basic must have been derelict in his duties. As the book went to press, uh, Harry was only told uh, about the mistake after the fact. Uh, he had no opportunity to fix it. Neil, what are the odds that a new edition was printed the next year with all the typos fixed? Oh, I very, very much doubt it. A year <laughs> is a long time in tech, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 0% chance. Uh, well, Mr. McCracken soon after discovered he enjoyed writing more than programming, and he set upon a career that took him all the way to the hallowed halls of Fast Company magazine, where he currently resides as tech editor. Uh, but one day he was, uh, he was pondering the fate of Arctic Adventure, and so he set about acquiring a copy of the aforementioned Captain 80 Book of Basic on eBay, and he tried to find and fix the error. Well, Neil, I'm happy to report that he's not only fixed the typo and made the game actually playable, he included several quality of life improvements, such as shortening some commands and introducing a helpful dog who follows you throughout your journey. And the best thing is it's all playable through a web-based TRS-80 web browser uh, emulator right on the official Arctic Adventure site. Hmm. 
I wonder if this is a problem that he was aware of and has haunted him for his entire life and he's gone, right, I finally set the record straight. Or if somebody's I, just made him aware in more recent years, I don't know. I don't know. I think that, uh, you know, if you look at the if you look at the site, uh, which I think is Arctic81.com. Yeah, Arctic81.com. He, he posts the, the, the whole saga of this story. And it is something I think he's thought about from time to time over the years. But something, you know, something or somebody finally uh, motivated him to, to tackle this project <laughs> and make things right. <laughs> That's fantastic. It's also it's great that he can go back over the code and he can fix it. Because if mm. you were to ask me to go back to say programming in pascal which i did at college for two years i would have to completely relearn the whole thing again i couldn't remember it at all yeah and i doubt he's been written t writing trs 80 basic for the last 40 years so <laughs> you know good on him for going back and, and and writing that wrong but um the fact that you can play it in a web browser is brilliant i think it's my duty now to find a really obscure machine with a working web browser that i can play it through just to complete the circle <laughs> So if, if you're a fan of either long lost software or text adventures, this is definitely one you need to check out and the price is right. It's free. You can play Arctic adventures and read the complete detail of its restarted development right now at arctic81.com. It can never be done, John. Doom cannot be made for an Amiga. That was the stance of John Romero when he and John Carmack unleashed the game that would devastate every 16-bit micro owner. The game that made so many of us jump ship to the PC and never look back. At least until we got old and nostalgic about old machines. But at that point, we didn't look back. And unless <laughs> you had a micro with an expensive accelerator, you really had no argument. It couldn't be done. I think we all accepted it couldn't be done on an Amiga 500. Mm -hmm. Fast forward a few decades and uh, the release of a new game could change everything. This game is called Dread. Uh, it's a Doom clone. It runs on the Amiga 500 with one meg of RAM, so pretty much stock. And on that spec, you're getting 15, sometimes more frames per second with a full screen image. We're not talking about postage size stamp windows here. It really is quite a spectacular thing to see. It's been doing the rounds for some time now in various stages of development, but it's really coming together as a complete game now in its own right. And not just a tech demo using Doom assets. It's all thanks to the hard work of Pixel Glass, Altair and Pixel Shade. They're the ones that are working on it. And uh, they've got together to, to thrash out a whole new game using the engine. It has its roots in the demo scene, which really does come through. These guys know what they're doing to rinse every last little bit out of out of the Amiga, out of the machine to achieve this. And um, yeah, they've done it. They really have made Doom on an Amiga 500 or you know, a passable Doom game a reality. It really is hard to believe it's running on it. Hopefully Duncan's showing some footage of this um, running while we're talking about it so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. Now, a demo has just been released this week. That's why it makes the news, which runs on the Amiga 500. It's also super, super smooth on the Amiga 1200. Um, you get quite a bump in performance there. Uh, and on the 1200, you're seeing a performance of this game very, very similar, very close to Doom running on a 486 PC, which is a, an absolutely breathtaking achievement, I think. 
Yeah, yeah, Neil, this is amazing. Um, and I've been doing Amigos for six plus years now, and I, I've seen plenty of first person shooters come and go. You've got Gloom, you've got Alien Breed 3D. Let's just say most of them don't hold up super well compared to, you know, PC games in the same genre at the time. But this, I just can't believe this is running on a stock Amiga 500. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? We've seen attempts at Doom-type games on the Amiga, and lots of people will hold them up and say, look, the Amiga can do it too, but you scratch below the surface and they've got an 060 card in there. Right. Or, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's the kind of spec that you could only have dreamed of back in the day. Um, you know, or uh, these days you, you could run them quite well using a Pi Storm. You could, you could get to see Alien Breed 3D. Otherwise, you were running them, if you could run them at all, in these really small postage size stamps. You could barely see what was happening on the screen. So mm -hmm. it, just, it, is, it is nothing short of mind-blowing what they've achieved here. I don't know what the technical wizardry is that goes on behind the scenes. There must be an awful lot of it going on, really drawing on that demo scene experience. Um, it's amazing. I can't wait to try it out on a 1200, on a 500. And also Atari ST fans can get in on the action um admittedly you know it follows the tradition as somebody said on our subreddit the tradition of uh atari sts getting inferior reports of amiga games <laughs> absolutely <laughs> brutal comment in the subreddit this week uh and it is a little bit slower than the amiga and it does require two megs of ram to run it on the sd but it's still playable it's still full screen and it's just as an impressive feat for that system as well and if you have an STE, it will tap into that to use its additional capabilities for some extra colors and such. So I guess it's here. We have to say it's here and we can never look back. It, let it never be said again that the Amiga can't do Doom. Um, if I take the rose tinted specs off a little bit, because I do always wear them for the Amiga, you know I do. Uh, it doesn't mm -hmm. quite do everything Doom does. It, it doesn't reach quite the same graphical fidelity Um there's not so much, for example, the floor textures are, are not the same. There's not, I haven't seen yet any elevated platforms with water down below and things like that, but it is still, well, my goodness, it's closer than anything we've ever thought possible or ever seen to Doom on an Amiga 500. And it is a timely and a lovely reminder that tech that's 30 years old or older still has secrets to reveal. People are still squeezing ever more out of these machines uh, and ever more surprises for us. So, um, I think it really does sum up nicely why I love doing what I do and why I love exploring these machines because it's far from over for these machines and for their life cycle. There's still so much more to see and so much more to come. And uh, we should all hold this up as a fantastic example of retro computing. Neil, last week, our community question of the week was, do you care if your children like the games you're into? And this is probably one of our most popular community questions of all time, Neil. We got tons and tons and tons of responses. Uh, I'm going to read the top three must, most upvoted responses over on the subreddit. Uh, Original MOS says, Kids have different expectations these days. We grew up in that exciting world of micros, consoles, and arcade games, and it was all new. So more basic games, graphics, and controls still blew us away. However, some games have amazing gameplay, which is important. And if they, that is the children, don't understand that, then they are definitely more from my wife's side and not worth bothering with. <laughs> it's not the game, it's the children, just not worth bothering with your children. Original MOS, throwing his kids under the bus. right? Off the <laughs> There's a nice point in there, which is uh, kids these days don't have that experience of seeing games in the arcade and then 
looking at the home platforms and going, right, which one can get as close as possible? Which is the best arcade port? Because the mm. very best now is what comes th down the line it's through the long. internet straight home you know if right. you go to the arcade now you're looking at a full-sized version of flappy bird and a, and a, a grabbing machine and there's <laughs> you're not excited about that coming into the home um, exactly but yeah be a, a little bit less brutal on your kids though <laughs> you know a little bit of leeway <laughs> uh tim bfet 66 says well, I'm in my mid-50s, and I have two quote-unquote kids of 29 and 30. Uh, they actually grew up with access to gaming, and while they don't all like the same things, there are some things we like in common. I used to play regularly with them when they were younger, Mario Kart on the SNES in, in 64, and when and we still game together today, most recently playing D&D Dark Alliance in co-op. Uh, he says, my daughter even ended up with a career as a gaming journalist. So you can have some harmony between the generations. Well, there you what, go. A, what a great story. Yeah, I, I know, Tim. Tim, you're never in your 50s. And uh, <laughs> for um, a, a current generation gaming journalist to have a foundation um, in retro gaming, because I know Tim has arcade machines and all sorts in his house. Um, it's nice to know that current you know, video game journalists um, have that hands-on experience uh, and not just mm -hmm. uh, I, i'm just read it in a book the history of video games right so <laughs> exactly uh, yeah good honor yeah uh and uh finally headers d writes i'm not sure care is the right word here it's nice when they do i've had some great fun playing stuff like streets of rage and lotus turbo challenge with my daughters but you have to let your kids go their own way and work out for themselves what they are and what they're into Fortunately, both of mine have turned out to be huge nerds. So I think that that's that that's all you can hope for. As long as they turn out to be nerds, it doesn't matter, you know, what games they're into. Yeah, that's a pleased parent right there. I'd be happy yeah. with that too. <laughs> mm -hmm. So thank you all so much for uh, submitting your responses to our community question of the week. Uh, next week, our community question is what you know we talked about uh how doom caused so many uh amiga and st owners to move over to the pc but i have a feeling there may be some other games involved in this as well so the community question of the week is what game caused you to move from the amiga or the st or any other uh 8-bit micro to the pc so please post your responses in the subreddit and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week and I think we can include the Apple Mac in that question because some will have moved Absolutely. to the other Mac instead of the PC. We don't want to cause a flame war on our subreddit. No, so no. <laughs> what made you move? Yeah. Good point, Neil. Good point. <laughs> Today's episode of This Week in Retro comes thanks to our partners at Anchor FM. Whether you're new to the game or you have an existing successful podcast, Anchor FM offer a home where you can extend your audience and find new sponsorship opportunities to make it the most successful podcast it can be. That's right, Neil. We love Anchor, and that's why we use them to host This Week in Retro. You should check them out at anchor.fm for more info. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. 
If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.